please do turn with me to Psalm 19. Psalm 19. We're going to kind of pick up where we left off just about a month ago, but I want to read the whole of the psalm. And we'll be referring back to um, the first six verses a little bit, but our main focus this evening will be on verses 7 to 14. So let's give our time and attention to the Lord's Word as we find it in Psalm 19. So to the choir master, a psalm of David. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes out through all the earth, and their words to the end of the world. In them he has set a tent for the sun, which comes out like a bridegroom leaving his chamber, and like a strong man runs its course with joy. Its rising is from the end of the heavens, and its circuit to the end of them, and there is nothing hidden from its heat. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned. In keeping them, there is great reward. Who can discern his errors? Declare me innocent from hidden faults. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Let's pray. Lord God, again, we thank you for the privilege of being in your house on your day. Lord, with like-minded brothers and sisters, Lord, with your word open before us, Lord, our hearts and our minds expectant that you would teach us and reveal your truth through your word to the benefit of our lives. Lord, help us to concentrate, we pray. Lord, whatever week we have had, whatever week we are thinking we may have with some going back to school, Lord, whether as pupils or teachers, Lord, new uh, activities starting in this new academic year, Lord, back into the normal pattern of church work from one week to the next. Lord, we pray this evening 
Lord, for fresh strength from on high. Lord, we pray for fresh wisdom and courage as we seek to be salt and light where you have placed us. And Lord, we pray that you would encourage us this evening through your word. Lord, help us to see again whether we have been walking with you for months, for years or for decades, the beauty and the value and the preciousness of your word. We ask these things in Jesus' name and for his name's sake. Amen. Well, as I suggested last month, Psalm 19 is a psalm which makes the profound simple, through which the Lord encourages us first to look up and to embrace afresh wonderful aspects of his self-revelation first through his creation, as the psalm is ordered, as we looked at last time, verses 1 to 6. We saw too that not only should we look up, but that creation has a purpose and that therefore we need to listen up as we look up. God's creation has that purpose, of course, at the very least, to declare that God is, that God exists, that consequently we should seek him, find him, recognise that we need to repent before him and be saved by him. As Paul says in Romans 1, 19 to 20, what can be known about God is plain to humanity, plain to them, as it says, because God has shown it to them. For God's invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they, that is humanity, that is us, are without excuse. The fuller revelation of God, in addition to that found through creation, is found in and through God's word, his living word, the Lord Jesus Christ, and written word, as we have it, Genesis, to Revelation. This is fuller revelation, sometimes termed special revelation, as it can lead to salvation, showing us as it does our sin, our sinful nature, and our sinfulness that comes out from our sinful nature, God's just and holy wrath against us and upon us because of such, and the merciful and the gracious provision of a saviour to allow us to escape this and to find refuge. God's revelation through creation is important. It's often termed general revelation. It's general in the sense of being worldwide. It's available to all, but in and of itself, it does not lead to salvation. That's why we need God's word. Psalm 19, therefore, draws our attention first to God's revelation through creation before turning our focus to what we may learn and how we may benefit from his revelation through his law or word or teaching. And we'll explore these different terms in verses 7 to 11, before challenging us at the end of the psalm in those verses 12 to 14 as to how we should respond. And it's this second half of the psalm that we're going to turn to more specifically this evening. Well, Solomon in Ecclesiastes memorably said that nothing 
is new under the sun. Ecclesiastes 1 verse 9. And I think that this is perhaps particularly true of sermons. So allow me unashamedly to reference Charles Spurgeon who suggests a helpful framework through which to look at Psalm 19 verses 7 to 11. So Spurgeon proffers that in these verses we can find three sets of six. So if you have your Bibles open in front of you, you can count along with me, make sure I haven't missed any. So firstly, we find six descriptive titles of God's words. So verse seven, law and testimony. Verse eight, precepts and commandment. Verse eight, fear, that's an unusual one, and we'll come back to that later. And then rules in verse nine. We find six characteristic qualities of God's word. It's perfect and sure, verse seven. It's right and pure, verse eight. It's clean and true, verse nine. And then our third set of six are six divine effects of God's word. It revives the soul. It makes wise the simple, verse seven. It enlightens the eyes and causes the heart to rejoice, verse 8. It warns and rewards God's servant, verse 11. That's, that's great. All rather neat and helpful. And it is, suggest it is. However, Spurgeon's scheme does beg the question of what we do with, I think, a further three characteristic qualities of God's word listed, commencing in verse 9. You might have seen these if you were following on. So verse 9, in addition to what Spurgeon said, we find that the word of the Lord endures forever, and it's righteous altogether. In verse 10, that it is to be desired more than gold, that it's sweeter than honey. And I suggest this goes to show the importance of reading God's word for ourselves, for ourselves, rather than without question accepting the pronouncements of even the great such as Spurgeon. Notwithstanding this, Spurgeon's scheme does draw our attention, and I hope you found this as we looked at these three sets of six. Spurgeon's scheme does draw our attention to the tremendously rich description in just a few short verses of God's word. So for much of our time this evening, I trust it will be edifying and instructive. We've had look up, listen up, now we're doing look in. Look in to each title, quality and effect of God's word more fully. So starting at verse seven, it's most likely that the law of the Lord verse 7, is not exclusively, exclusively referring to the Ten Commandments that we often call the Law of God or the Law of Moses. It's also likely it's not exclusively referring not only to the Ten Commandments, but neither to the wider Law of Moses or even the first five books of the Bible, Genesis to Deuteronomy, sometimes known as the Pentateuch. The word Torah, which is translated law, can equally accurately be translated as doctrine or instruction, so including all of God's teaching, all of his word, 
as we have it now, from Genesis to Revelation. The law of the Lord is here described as perfect, or entire, whole, complete, sound. When this word perfect in the Hebrew is used of sacrifices, the same word is translated unblemished. So you get the idea. Is it any wonder, consequently, that we are told that this law of the law, this doctrine, this instruction, this teaching, does what? It revives the soul. It's unblemished, it's perfect, it's sound, it's complete. Perhaps more accurately, we should say restores rather than revives. It pays you money, take your pick. Either way, we are reminded of the power of God's word to bring fresh life to malnourished souls, to provide direction to wayward souls so that they may be restored, to draw lost souls to the God who made them by himself, for himself, to be with himself forever. Soul is both our human life, our God-given existence, but also the entirety of who we are, our innermost being. And consequently, sometimes, the same word soul is translated as heart. Remember that, because we're going to come back to that shortly. So there's two things, hopefully, that you remember. One is going to say something about the fear of the Lord, true, but also log in your minds, I'm going to say something more about heart. What we find just from simply verse 7, simply from that the law of the Lord is perfect and revives the soul, is that there is nothing, absolutely nothing, that we need from God that he does not say, reveal, and teach us through his word. There is no lack to it, no deficiency of it. It should be the first place we turn to when we are personally struggling. It is the primary, the best tool for the pastor as the substance of his prayers, his face-to-face -face counsel for those who are discouraged, doubting, fearful, falling. It is the foundation for all gospel preaching, evangelism and discipleship. Ignore it. And our obedience, our witness fails, our distinctiveness is forsaken, and we become ineffective before a lost and a hurting world. The world out there does not want you and me to become more like them. What they need is for us to become more like Jesus. They're looking for something different, something true, something real, something that they can build their lives on rather than this airy-fairy, effervescent stuff that never seems to land anywhere that is increasingly being peddled by those within our society. David, later on in Psalm 119, verse 96, says this, I have seen a limit to all perfection, but your commandment is exceedingly broad. I think that's where our translators struggled exceedingly broad. I think what David meant is I have seen a limit to all of your perfection but your commandment is beyond anything and everything else that I have ever come across and will ever come across. There is nothing like your word, your teaching, your law, your commandment, O Lord. It is the testimony of the Lord, still in verse 7, which we're told is sure, steadfast, reliable, unshakable. There is a sense of permanence here too. 
when so much seems to change so fast and we can find ourselves bamboozled, it is God's word, the testimony of who he is, who we are, how he loves us, how it is possible for rebel sinners to be forgiven by the thrice holy God, which is, which is the anchor to our souls. God's testimony makes wise the simple. Do you ever find yourself in company where you think, I feel a bit thick today, okay? Um, most of my colleagues when I'm working with them, you know, I told you about this new starter tomorrow, Michael, who has three degrees in counting. Um, I feel quite thick uh, in the midst of most of my colleagues. But here we find that God's testimony makes wise the simple. I find that really rather encouraging. It furnishes us with an intelligent attitude to the experiences of life. This includes matters of general interest, basic morality, prudence in secular affairs, skills in the arts, moral sensitivity and spiritual experience. And we could probably add a whole pile more. Hebrew wisdom was very different from other ancient world views. Hebrew wisdom emphasised the human will of the heart, not, not the intellect, of the head primarily. Now, remember, of course, that Jesus said the greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul and strength. The Christian faith is, is not one where we you know, forget about intellect, forget about our minds, it's all about feelings, it's not. The Christian faith is beautifully, wonderfully um, holds together and multifaceted and makes sense and, and, and you know, however much we want to plummet intellectually, it's, it's going to hold together. But Hebrew wisdom, first and foremost, was concerned with the human will of the heart. Consider, if you like, the book of Proverbs. It's practical wisdom. That's the idea. Based on what God revealed about right and wrong, all applied to daily life. So here is a similar thought to that which we find in Psalm 119, verse 105. Your, God's word, is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. So in its effect, the testimony of the Lord is far better than those insurance-selling meerkats who keep saying simples. Okay, the law of the Lord makes wise the simple. So next time you see that advert and hear the meerkats go simples, you the law of the Lord is simple. The precepts of the Lord, verse 8, we're told are right and that they rejoice the heart. Precept is a, a less used word. I don't know if it's part of your daily vocabulary, but it's, it's not so much mine. And we can think, what does precept mean? It means what is mandated, or what is willed, what's going to take place. A New Testament equivalent may be the description we find in Romans 12, verse 3, of the will of God, and it's acceptable, good, and perfect, or good, acceptable, and perfect in the order that it's given within the scriptures. <coughs> With respect to the fact that such precepts, or will of God, are right, this can also mean that they're upright or level. This doesn't necessarily mean that obeying them, keeping them, following them, is always easy. 
It's not. So if you're a young or a new Christian here this evening, then sorry, this is kind of spoiler alert time. Because following the Lord can be hard work and take a lot of effort. But it does mean that the Lord's ways are always, always, always best and most beneficial. Even if we cannot see it at the time. And sometimes we can't. We're told that the command of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes, also verse 8. It is fair to say that the meaning of the distinct words translated law, testimony, precepts, command, well, they, they all overlap. I'm not a Hebrew scholar. I didn't do Hebrew. I, actually, I did one lecture when I was at university. Walked into it, I thought, I've done New Testament Greek, so um, Hebrew can't be all that much different, can it? Um, I, I turned around and walked out after the one lecture. I thought, all these little squiggles, and it's read right to left rather than left to right, and the grammar is totally different than Latin and French and Italian and all these other things. I wish I persevered, but I didn't. So I'm having to rely on others' skill and knowledge. What is clear is that these different words, law, testimonies, precept, command, were all deliberately, carefully chosen under the superintending work of the Holy Spirit. And as such, we are to seek to understand the nuance of each of them. So command, here, verse 8, can refer to commandment, as in all of the ten commandments. But it is broader than that, both including any command of God, and there are 613 commandments in the Old Testament, but also in the terms of God's covenant relationship with Israel, and also in and through Jesus Christ with us. So it's everything that the Lord commands that he says. And these commandments, we're told, are pure, they're untainted. There is nothing in them which would ever harm us. Indeed, the absolute opposite. We have a vegetable, we have three vegetable boxes, raised beds, the fancy folk call them, in our back garden. Um, but we have a couple of cats in the next door's house. I don't know where I'm going with this. And uh, unless we're quick each year to get the chicken wire up over and around or on top of the, the raised bed, next door cats go great. These are just, you know, the creme de la creme of the litter box. Um, and we, we didn't plant anything this year because we were too late to, to get rid of what the cats had done. But when I was pulling out weeds, I thought, well, I've got potatoes here and pulled out a whole pile of, you know, half of, half of one of these round tops that you get in the garden with potatoes, and we thought, oh, that's some potatoes. Well, we had and cooked them up today. I thought, a bit green, and um, a bit hard, and didn't necessarily smell so right, we put them in the bin. Okay, because we weren't sure that these potatoes were untainted, and that might have caused us some harm. We don't have those worries about God's word, about God's commandments. There is nothing untainted Nothing that will harm us in God's word, indeed the absolute opposite. Because the commands in God's word give light to enlighten our eyes. Do you remember how when Jonathan dipped his staff in the honey, the effect of that, we're told that his eyes brightened, 1 Samuel 14, verse 27. In verse 10, we are told that God's rules or decrees are sweeter than honey. How much more will God's rules, commands, testimonies, precepts 
brighten our spiritual eyes. We are instructed, even warned by Solomon in Proverbs 3 verses 5 and 6, to trust in the Lord with all your heart. Do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he will make straight your paths. We are to keep or to guard our heart with vigilance, as we read in Proverbs later on, verses 4, and sorry, chapter 4, verse 23. Keep or guard your heart with all vigilance, for from it flow the springs of life. Again, in Hebrew thought, the heart is the centre of a person's being, where one's innermost thoughts reside, motivations come from. Scripture describes us as sheep, we all, all too readily, wander off paths of righteousness and go astray. Our hearts, Jeremiah reminds us, Jeremiah 17 verse 9, are deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who, who can understand it? God understands. God understands. It is why he has given us his word. His word re revives, restores souls, hearts, as we saw earlier how the word can be translated soul and heart interchangeably. It's something in which our hearts, God's word, is something in which our hearts can truly rejoice. Having quoted from Augustine last sermon, allow me to do so again, in his confessions, Augustine states, you may well recognise the quote, you have made us for yourself, O Lord, and our hearts are restless until they rest in you. Our hearts are restless until they rest in God. So if the stones, that's, that's the rolling stones, had read Augustine, better if they had read the Bible, they wouldn't have had to say, I can't get no satisfaction, I can't get no satisfaction, because I try and I try and I try and I try, I can't get no, I can't get no. Because like so many, they were, they still are, looking in the wrong place. True satisfaction, genuine contentment, proper heart rejoicing is not something that we can work our way towards or conjure up by singing about it. We can't gain it. It is a gift. It's uniquely found in and given by God. So if, as we have argued, verses 7 to 11 are about the benefits and the blessings of God's word, then the first half of verse 9 is a surprise to find. Remember I said, remember fear? We're going to look at that now. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever, verse 9. The term fear in verse 9 of Psalm 19 is used objectively. What does that mean? It means that it's referring to that body of knowledge about God in keeping with the fact that to fear God starts with knowing God. As Solomon put it in Proverbs 1 verse 7, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. I suggest this is where God's revelation through his creation so back to the first half of Psalm 19, comes into play. Who has not felt rather small and insignificant on a clear, dark night when myriad stars are shining in all their splendour? 
or been humbled at the height and the weight and the power of wave after wave rolling in, crashing in to Tynemouth in a storm. When we recognise and accept that such are of God, created by him, not the product of chance, then rightfully there is a sense of fear of God, fear before God. Not so much terror, although I'm certainly not ruling that out, more a respect and awe which causes us to deeply humble ourselves before the creator of the universe. And certainly this is the attitude we should have, a heart disposition before the Lord which ought to endure forever. The more we come to know God, the more we are in awe of him, the greater our worshipful obedience to him should be. The superior depth and breadth of God's revelation to us, through his word, his law, his testimony, his precepts, his commands, when compared even, even with the wonders of creation, may consequently be termed collectively as the fear of the Lord. We may even say that this term, fear of the Lord, is both a description of God's word and an effect of God's word combined, at which point the whole arithmetic of three sets of six goes completely out the window. We are told that such fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. I'm reminded of Jesus' high priestly prayer in John 17. You might want to flick over to it, put a finger in John 17. Keep another finger in Psalm 19 because we're coming back to that shortly. <clears throat> in John 17, Jesus prays that his followers would be sanctified. John 17 verse 17. That his heavenly father would sanctify his followers in the truth. Before we are informed that your, that is God's word, is truth. So look at the context of Jesus' prayer in John 17. Jesus has just requested that his heavenly father not take his followers, and now that includes us, out of the world, but rather that we would be kept from the evil one, verse 15 of John 17. And Jesus is about to emphasise that just as his father has sent him into the world, so he has sent his followers into the world. So the question is this, how may Jesus' followers be preserved, remain sanctified, that, that is set apart and aside unto holiness for God, God's honour and God's glory. How may they escape the corruption of the world, resist the temptations in the world and remain a witness to the world <coughs> through the clean, unalloyed, forever enduring, in time and eternity, word of God. Back to 19, in contrast to the false, empty promises that the world holds out, the lies that deceit so often found, we are told that the rules or just decrees or judgments of the Lord are true and altogether righteous, verse 9. So this is a judicial concept which speaks of the pronouncements or functions of government, whether they be civil or religious. You don't need me to tell you that the track record of earthly governments is kind of mixed at best, really. God's government, his judgments of his sovereign reign and rule, his word recorded for us in scripture are all 
true. They're all true. It's a Hebrew word which at root means steadfast, faithful, sure, reliable, altogether righteous, no crookedness at all. Some of you may, like me, be old enough to remember, do you remember the Daz Doorstep Challenge? Does that mean anything to anybody? A chap called Danny Baker, part of an advert for a washing powder, which promised superlative results for your white's wash to the extent that you'd almost need one of those welder's hoods to see them because so bright, so brilliant would they be. Residents were challenged on camera as to whether their whites could beat the Daz doorstep challenge. Or you may recall again, sorry this is a bit of a generational thing, if you were born after 1991 then you might need to go on YouTube later. Do you remember the man from Del Monte? Yeah, the man from Del Monte, he say, yeah, okay. Again, the advert was all about persuading the viewer that this product, in this instance, fruit juice or um, tin fruit, was of superior quality to anything else you could buy. So stringent were the standards of the man from Del Monte that when he said yes to fruit just picked, you, the consumer, knew that you were getting the best possible in the cans or the cartons that you bought with your hard-earned cash at the supermarket. Whatever our generation, we're all aware of such advertising. Perhaps we're, we're really quite wary of such advertising. So, why should we have no such reservation when it comes to God's rules or indeed the entirety of his word? After all, the, the claims here are extravagant. They are extravagant. God's judgment, his word, is more to be desired than gold, even much fine gold. It, it's sweeter also than honey and drippings from the comb, verse 10. Comparisons repeated by David, again in Psalm 119, when they are more widely applied to all that God says. Worth more than much fine gold? Sweeter than honey, even drippings from a fresh honeycomb. Really? David gives us the answer as to why in verse 11. Moreover, by them, that is God's rule, his judgments, his words and word, is your servant warned. In keeping them, there is great reward. The emphasis here is that single word, moreover. It's intended to make us sit up and, and really take notice. It's almost as though the whole psalm, and especially verses 7 to 10, have been building up until we reach this crescendo of verse 11. To this effect, this effect of God's word. Why is this? As David contemplates the blessings and benefits of God's law, God's teaching, God's word, he commences with what we have read in verse 7. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. I wonder, just wonder, if we are to thus understand that by listing this first, we are to give it our particular attention. I wonder if we may argue that all the other characteristic qualities of God's word it's sure, right, pure, clean, true, righteous altogether. 
They're all facets of what we may call the diamond of the perfection of the perfect word of God. Perhaps too we are to grasp that the preeminent, the best, the first divine effect of God's word is that it revives or restores the soul. And appreciate that our soul has a value far, far greater than we often attribute to it and anything that the world can give. As Jesus said, what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? Mark, sorry, Matthew 16, verse 26. Friends, the diamond of the perfect word of God is of far greater worth than to be more desired than gold, even much fine gold, because it warns us of danger to our souls. In context of errors, faults, sins, transgression, verses 12 to 13, God's word illuminates, serving as both a guide for our path so we can see where to put one foot in front of the other, but also a beacon way ahead to aim at so that we know we're going in the right direction. Both are meant by that, such as the underlying meaning of that word, warmed. God's word is sweeter than honey because by keeping God's word, honouring God's word, listening to God's word and acting upon it, not just, to, not just uh, hearers but to be doers of God's word, there is, there really is great reward, both here in time and on into eternity. It is God through his word who brings life, who revives souls. Through his word, God in his mercy and grace saves. We don't get what we deserve. We don't get God's holy, just wrath against us as sinners. We do get what we don't deserve. Forgiveness of our sins and of us as sinners to be clothed in the righteousness of Christ, to be adopted into God the Father's family, to be indwelt by his Holy Spirit, who reminds us of the words of Jesus, of God, and convicts us when we go astray from them. In and of ourselves, we cannot see the radical corruption that is the effect of sin. Our thoughts, our words, our actions, our very natures are all, all of them are impacted. So the answer to the question of verse 12, who can discern his errors, is no one. We might have some perception, but in terms of an understanding of all our errors, all our faults, all our sins, no, never. Unless and until God through his word shines the light on our hearts and our minds. Because we are so blinded and often so deluded, we therefore need someone, capital S, external to us, someone totally other than us, someone incorruptibly holy to show us, to help us, both from what we are aware of and also from, you see how it says hidden faults, hidden faults, someone who, who can and is willing to forgive us. I'm reminded of the verses in the hymn, Give Me a Sight, O Saviour. Do you remember that one? Yeah. O wonder of all wonders, that through thy death for me, my open sins, my secret sins, can all forgiven be. Our attitude should be the same of David 
in Psalm 139, verses 23 and 24. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts, and see if there be any grievous way in me, and lead me in the way everlasting. If we were in any doubt as to just how sin corrupts us, it is the grievous fact, look at this in verse 30, it is the grievous fact that we can sin and do sin presumptuously. How do we understand that? I think the best way to describe such sins are those times to the dishonour of God and to our shame that our attitude is more forgive me for the sin or sins I'm about to commit. Forgive me for the sin or sins I'm about to commit. There is an arrogance and an irreverence which lies behind presumptuous sins. Some people, including Christians, can have a bold and daring confidence in God's goodness, but they do not obey him or heed his warnings. It's God's job to forgive. You ever heard that? They rationalise that God will always forgive them later. But friends, we cannot, we must not, invoke God's blessing and continue to live in sin. We must not be complacent about our spiritual condition. We need to be humble enough to ask God to guard us from such sin, to forgive us from such great transgression. You see how presumptuous sins are described here by David, inspired by the Holy Spirit? They are it's a great transgression. But also to know that God will give us the strength to walk before him in continuing faith and obedience when we come to him humbly and penitently in confession and repentance. Having reminded himself of the heaven's declaration of God's glory, the sky's proclamation of God's handiwork, the blessings and benefits of God's word, it is perhaps unsurprising that David turns to his words. Verse 14. In light of God's self-revelation through what we may term both world and word, David is conscious of two things. He doesn't measure up. And he has an obligation to do so. He doesn't measure up. And he has an obligation to do so. And this response commenced in verse 12. Did you notice that for the first time in the psalm, it's in verse 12 that David gets personal. From the previous third person of your servant, verse 11, his errors at the commencement of verse 12, David moves to the first person of me and I at the second half of verse 12 and then verse 13. God's revelation is of his person to our person. Through world and word, God leads us to himself. That, friends, is the greatest blessing of all. So it's look up, it's listen up, it's look in, why, all, to come to him. Look up, listen up, look in, all, to come to him. David's response, verse 14, to who God is may be seen as threefold. Desire, trust, praise. Desire, trust, praise. His desire 
is that his words are very close derivative of the word translated speech back in verse 2 of Psalm 19. That David's words and the meditation of his heart may be acceptable, may bring delight and pleasure in God's sight, his desire. David's trust is that the Lord is his rock, a sure, steadfast foundation for all of life. And his praise is to the one who, even when David fails and falls, will bring him back, buy him back, as his redeemer. May we, with God's help, respond likewise. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the great richness of your word. Lord, we are challenged by it, humbled by it, rejoice in it, guided by it. Lord, we pray that you would help us to live for the living word, our Lord and Saviour Jesus Christ, more and more each day. Lord, we're so fickle, we fail so often, we stumble and we fall. But Lord, your word is the lamp to our feet and the light to our path. Lord, help us to do what David says that he did and encourages all to do, again in Psalm 119, to hide your word in our hearts that we might not sin against you. Lord, so often we are deluded. Lord, we think we know ourselves and, and yet we don't really. Lord, we cannot discern our hidden faults. But Lord, you can. And Lord God, we pray that in and through your Holy Spirit that you would be pleased graciously, as you always do, to convict us where we need to be convicted. To remind us of those words of Jesus that we have forgotten or are even neglecting. And that, Lord, we would truly understand, accept, and even embrace, celebrate, that your teaching, your word, your precepts, your rules, your, decree, your decrees, all these different characteristics of your word are more valuable than much fine gold and are sweeter than honey, even honey from the honeycomb. Lord, we pray that our desire would be to honour you, our trust would be in you, and our praise would ever be of you. For we ask all in Jesus' name, for his name's sake. Amen.